Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Miranda Corcoran, and today I'm delighted to have two guests with me, Melanie V. Dawson and Meredith L. Goldsmith, editors of a stunning new collection, American Literary History and the Turn Toward Modernity, which was published earlier this year by the University Press of Florida. So welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. Yes, thank you for having us. Not at all. It's an absolute pleasure. And I guess I should begin by saying that I was really just blown away by the quality of the collection you guys put together. It was really a stunning book. And I think you just do such an exceptional job of encapsulating the changes and the transformations inherent to the period that you work on. And I think even just down to a sort of visual on a visual level, it's a stunning book. You have this amazing cover design based on a William Morris print. And I think Mm -hmm. even the cover design sums up to a degree what you're doing in the book. It's this incredible ornate design, which sort of harkens back to the affluence of the Victorian era, but it also has this dynamism or this experimentation that we might associate with the turn of the century. So I think everything from the the content to the the cover art is just absolutely beautiful. So it's really, really exciting to have the opportunity to talk to you guys about that book. Um, So I suppose, like I said, I think the book has a really exciting premise. And what really struck me was that you basically challenge the conventional periodization of literary culture between 1880 and 1930. And you put forth the idea that rather than representing a wholesale rejection of Victorian values, the period can instead be seen as a complex negotiation of both the new experimental forms that were emerging at the time and the entrenched values of the 19th century. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about the project and how it came together and what your aims were? I think Meredith and I were uh, reminding ourselves a little about this last night, in fact, um, as we had a little chat in the evening. And it seemed to us that this project was born out of a certain um, frustration or feeling a little hemmed in uh, by some of the ways that uh, maybe conferences are arranged or other forms of periodization emerge in the field. Um, around particular journals or um, other uh, set conversational uh, venues that are open to us. And um, I was I was reminded that early in my career, I had an article based on a turn of the century author, and I tried to send it to a, a journal for 19th century studies, and they, they didn't find it sufficiently 19th century. And then I turned around and I sent it to a journal in uh, 20th century studies, and they weren't convinced that it was sufficiently 20th century or modern. And this was very early on in my career. And I remember just sitting back and thinking, hmm, (laughs) where does it belong then? Um, 
And I think little moments like that had continued to crop up in my career um, and in careers of other uh, scholars who really do specialize in the turn of the century. And, and one day we were just frustrated and we thought we're going to uh, create a conference panel about this, about this problem. And um, it was rejected from the conference for not being sufficiently <laughs> periodized. <laughs> and that really sets in motion. <laughs> and, and I think if I, if I can add to that, you know, both of us also had similar experiences, you know, um, in, in the job market, you know, where one often sees 19th century jobs, 20th century positions. And, you know, I've gone on the market and sort of been asked, what are you, you know, and, you know, as a turn of century specialist, um, I say, you know, I'm doing both. Um, but we, I think that in the job market example and in the journal example, we saw, you know, as Melanie said, that there were certain notions of these literary periods, which, you know, just seemed extremely rigid and not really, you know, accurate in relationship to the kinds of literary innovations that were occurring at the turn of the century. Um, So we had a desire when we started thinking about putting this project together to really recapture um, some of the breadth of the period. Um, And as you said, I would say the tendency toward experimentation and innovation, as well as looking back toward the Victorian period. That's really interesting because, of course, it does raise the question of how do we define the 19th century? How do we define the 20th century? You know, is 1899 really a sufficient cutoff point? I mean, it seems so arbitrary to imagine that everything that was the 19th century suddenly ceased to be at the end of 1899. So it's really wonderful that you're sort of opening up this space in which one can actually explore the transformations of this period. And in some ways, it sort of reminds me of a sort of maybe a temporal analog to what scholars are doing with transnational studies, where they're sort of refusing to be hemmed in by the boundaries of nation and sort of looking at the way in which different cultures engage with each other and exchange ideas and looking at ideas across cultures. So there does seem to be something of a shift away from this sort of rigid definition of literary specialisms. And it really seems like what your project is doing is adding to it in a sort of a temporal sense that you're moving away from the kind of rigid adherence to centuries or time periods in terms of how literature is defined. It's very interesting that you you mention um, this international interest because Meredith just also edited a book on cosmopolitanism. Um, I just wrote an article on cosmopolitanism and Maybe there's really something interesting there in an overlap of this age of new travel that we're getting into uh, late 19th and, and toward the turn of the century that boundaries of various kinds seem to be opening up for those who are going to have um, positions in Venice and come back to the U.S. or Wharton who... Um, went across the Atlantic. I don't know how many times was it, Meredith? Did you? 66. Wow. Wow. In an age before like budget airlines, that is astounding. That's right. <laughs> and I think if we talk, if we're talking about this notion of the long 19th century, you know, sometimes simply 
bringing in the chronology of an author like Wharton is helpful, you know, so, you know, Wharton's born in the 1860s and lives until the late 1930s, you know, so for someone who's seen as a sort of, you know, kind of hidebound, traditional, you know, Victorian, you know, all these stereotypes that are often associated with her that are also often associated with women, you know, she's someone who's living in Europe during the rise of fascism, you know, is acutely aware of the rise of the new technologies of the early 20th century. So that's part of why I think that she actually, she speaks to what you're talking about in terms of sort of challenging ideas about temporality, as well as ideas about, you know, sort of national identity and origins. Absolutely. I think it's a really interesting way of looking at, again, disciplines that tend to be considered in a very rigid manner. So hopefully this is opening up a sort of a more fluid conception of how we understand both space and time. And one thing I was wondering was, considering the way in which your book looks at how authors at the turn of the century not only looked forward, but also looked backwards to the 19th century and to the recent past, do you think that your book interrogates or maybe even problematizes to a degree the whole notion of modernity or the modern. I think so. And this was something that was always implicit in the project. And the more we seemed to write about it, the harder it became to use the word modern and modernity without a kind of self-consciousness about exactly what we meant. And that's a kind of useful thing to go through because modernity has become a term that I think encompasses so many ideas about progression and positive teleological movement. And if you just put some conceptual brackets around it and you start to think, well, is that the way it really works? Is there really just steady, slow progress And instead, if you start to think about a long, slow turn of the century, you come up with, I think, some different um, shortcuts to the way that you talk about something like periodization. We came up with the term the T20 um, or that turn into the 20th century, which is more of a term that indicates multiple kind of valences in ideas about progress and history and tradition and where you get this real mixture of, um, I don't know, impulses that's, that's really complex, that's really interesting to try to pull apart and to untangle and to think about where they all come from. I would add, I think this is even implicit in the title because, you know, as Melanie remembers, we, we, we debated about this quite a bit. Um, and it seemed like hmm, phrases like, you know, emergent modernity and even to a certain extent, traditional modernity implied that, you know, sort of teleological movement and a rapidity of movement. Um, Whereas the turn toward modernity emphasizes that this is a really gradual progress, you know, wheels are turning slowly, sometimes looking toward the past as well, you know. So I think it's it's really caused, you know, me to question um, how much we can really valorize the, the narrative of modernity that we've received um, in the study of 20th century American literature in particular. That's really interesting because it does seem sometimes in how we frame literature, whether it's in, you know, 
books or survey courses, I think we sometimes tend to frame it as a sort of as as you say, the sort of teleological march forward, as if there's some sort of purpose in history, as if everything in history and literature is a march towards progress. And that is a really, really difficult and a, a really, really problematic concept. So I think the manner in which you both sort of unravel and interrogate this period and look at the ways in which, you know, things sort of, as you say, you know, almost sort of vacillate and there's, there's, forward movement but there's also sort of backward movement and there's stasis and there's looking forward and there's reflection and there're just so many different complex strands all occurring at the same time it seems to be a much more productive way to look at that period and i have to say one thing that i also found very fascinating was that when you were talking about the turn of the century as a period of experimentation you weren't just looking at how, again, writers looked forward, looked towards the future, looked at these, you know, experimental, often artistic new literary forms. But you also talked about how they were experimenting in terms of incorporating popular culture and elements of popular cinema and print advertising and so on into their writing. And I was wondering would you be able to say a bit more about how some of the authors discussed in the book sort of unsettle this boundary between elite and popular culture? And do you think that this is an important aspect of that turn towards the modern? It, yeah, I can speak to that. I, I, I And, I, you know, my work on, on Jesse Fawcett, which is in the book, I think is an example of this. You know, Fawcett is someone who's, you know, typically read for these sort of high cultural allusions that people find in her fiction. You know, she was seen as very, you know, genteel and bourgeois during the period. And because, um, you know, her, 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 her work was really criticized in the thirties by, you know, African-American intellectuals like Alan Locke, you know, she was viewed as somebody who was again, sort of hopelessly retrograde, you know, mid Victorian was the term that was used much as Wharton was treated by the end of her career. Um, but if we read Fawcett's fiction carefully, you know, we see that this is somebody who is like very sensitive to what's going on in, you know, Hollywood cinema, which a lot of African-American critics are in the time, like Langston Hughes, for example. We just haven't typically viewed Fawcett in that way. Um, and I think that this is one thing that the book does when you start thinking about these authors, you know, in relationship to periodicals and magazines and, you know, um, even Hollywood magazines. Um, so there's just, there's many ways in which we, and, and we, we know that the authors of the period were engaged with these popular yes, works. We just haven't absolutely. really been encouraged. So I suppose even from a scholarly perspective, in that we're way. encouraged to maintain these boundaries between, again, elite and popular culture. And I think looking at the manner in which a number of these authors actually do incorporate elements of popular culture and often, you know, culture that would have been considered, you know, typically working class or produced for the working class. I think this actually speaks further to this broader project that you want, you're undertaking of attempting to destabilize uh, boundaries or destabilize categories, whether that's of, you know, time or chronology or location. So it really seems to fit in with that broader project. And I really liked that. 
I think that some of the other materials that are gathered together in these essays, you know, they include uh, the documents for Native American um, school, um, which is in Christina Stantu's um, piece. They include uh, guidebooks on uh, reading. Uh, John Nichols's essay takes those up. And, and we start to see that um, what we might consider to be highbrow authors from the period uh, were part of this tradition um, and that um, there was no real sort of literary textual vacuum around them. Um, if we go back to somebody like Wharton, um, and this is how Meredith and I met, by the way, is in the Wharton Study Society, um, you, you know that Wharton um, wrote in a great many genres for a great many venues, for really popular magazines. And that leads somebody... Um, you know, like me, when I was working on the essay on companionate marriage to look at uh, tracks and, and little pamphlets that are authored about marriage by things like the American Birth Control League or really popular and contentious books like the Companionate Marriage book by um, Lindsay and Evans. And to start thinking about, you know, how all of these um, materials are coexisting in the culture and that we really do get a different vision of history and um, contentiousness if we look at a broad array of materials. And I think that's really exciting. And I think another area in which this is evident is um, the essay in the book on, um, on Sarah Pyatt, you know, who's now one of the, you know, few sort of like, like, sort of post-bellum, late 19th century American woman poets who's in anthologies, um, but who was really famous during the time for her canonization in the classroom um, and was, you know, in these classroom readers and her poetry was memorized. um, And that what's sort of called in quotes schoolroom poetry um, has been very much derided, you know, um, in the 20th century, especially by the modernists. Um, but so then we see that those were boundaries that were being crossed, you know, pretty commonly during the period. And then I probably shouldn't forget Dale Bauer's essay on Libby, you know, who is a very popular uh, author who really appeals to working class young women readers um, and to see something about Laura Jean Libby in a, in a text that's um, encompassing some form of what might be called high modernism and um, pieces on Mary Austin um, and Theodore Dreiser. We just found that a really inviting part of this project as we worked Absolutely. with it. And actually the fact that you mentioned this brings me back to something else I wanted to address, and that's the diversity of essays and the diversity of contributions to the collection. And I was just curious if you could maybe say a bit about how the different essays in your book relate to each other or interact with each other. Do, is there a sort of consistent thread running throughout them or are they perhaps a little bit more eclectic? You know, I think there's there's two things that leap to mind for me. One, I think we really kind of wanted to um, unsettle the sort of the notion of the, of genre as well, um, and it's probably you know um, evident to the reader. You know, when you look at this volume, and there's there's one there's one essay on Dreiser. You know, so this period, which is seen as you know the rise of high naturalism and realism, we wanted to have you know 
poetry um, in different kinds of styles, popular fiction. So diversity of genre was a, was a real part of what we were aiming for. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. Sorry. Um, and I also think that um, we were just delighted by the range of possibilities before us when we received some um, proposals about this. And they came in really quickly and they were very distinctive. And I just remember thinking, um, there's so much in front of us and there's so much variety. Now, that being said, you know, one of the things that we did toward the end of the project is we started sharing sort of drafts of the introduction. And then we started to have more of a kind of email conversation that was going on alongside the introduction. So there were all of these kind of multiple paths of communication that started to open up the more that authors started sharing ideas with one another. And that was kind of an experiment. I, maybe you would say that too, Meredith, as we reached that point. But I think it was a very nice and inviting one. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I mean, and I'm, and I'm thinking about, you know, just the sort of the conversations between some of the essays here um, that we have the essay on, um, you know, Jane Addams and all the stories that circulated around the devil baby at Hull House, you know, so ideas about modernity and primitivism in that essay are sort of in contrast and conversation with um, the essay by Christina Stenkew, you know, about the poetry that was being produced at the Carlisle industrial school. Um, so I think, that, and, and I think that that's what fascinates me about the period, you know, that there are these overlapping conversations between, you know, um, yeah, immigrant that cultures, really Native sense, American actually, cultures. Because one of the um, things, of course, that we associate that, that turn made. of the century period with is this sort of upswing in uh, immigration to the U.S. and the diversification of American culture and, of course, the whole notion of the boiling pot or the melting pot, sorry. Um, so this actually really seems to echo a lot of what was going on culturally. And you're right, these are connections that really haven't been made yet. And I think this actually brings me to the next thing I wanted to discuss with you, because in your introduction, you touch on this really interesting idea that I think comes from the work of Heather Love. And that's the notion that modernity is essentially a homogenizing project and that those who were seen as not being modern, those who were seen as lagging behind or backward, were usually those who challenged social norms in some way, women or people of color or members of the LGBTQ community. And I think that's such a fascinating way of looking at the idea of modernity, because we often associate modernity with progress, both social and cultural and political. So is this something that is addressed in your collection? Is this something that the writer's uh, in your collection, really explore this, you know, uh, conflicted idea of modernity that perhaps it actually is not inclusive and it's not as progressive as we'd like to believe. Well, certainly, I think um, the Ramsey essay on um, she calls it the sentimental myth of the devil baby, um, <laughs> you know, and it is um, this. Um, traditional kind of frightening notion that's attached to an immigrant community. And I think the, the way that she shows how this became really sensationalized um, and almost sort of a, a common discourse within a certain community shows how willing in some ways um, 
those at the turn of the century were to label something sort of backward, regressive, frightening, and that those gestures were part and parcel of modernity. And I would add to that again, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the Stank Hugh essay, which I think addresses a lot of these issues. You know, the idea that, you know, um, as part of the Carlisle Indian School's mandate, we were going to teach, um, you know, Native American students to write poetry in certain, you know, very, very sort of traditional Western forms, you know, and label that as part of progress. Um, I think that's a part of that movement as well. That's a really fascinating idea, actually, how we how narrowly we define pro- progress and how exclusionary that can be. That's really, really fascinating. And I really do love how uh, a number of the essays within the collection actually do sort of speak to this idea of the exclusionary nature of modernity and how these things that we might cherish as a civilization or as a culture, these notions of progress and even, you know, civilization, that these are often things that exclude people who don't meet our criteria for what we consider civilized. So there's some really fascinating ideas and some really fascinating discourses going on there. But for now, I wanted to actually return to a figure you've both mentioned a few times, and that's Edith Wharton. Could you say a little bit more about why um, you view Wharton as the central turn of the 20th century figure or the central T20 figure? What is it about her that speaks to what was going on culturally at the time? I think we both have a lot to say here. We could we could linger on this for a while. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The biography, as I mentioned before, is my first point. Simply, you know, the breadth of observation that she had. And I think the fact that in the 30s, you know, in this moment, you know, of modernity, she's looking back and sort of narrativizing, you know, this this sort of elite culture of the 1860s that she was brought into. She's memorializing the past in a way. Um, And I think some of the work that she's doing, you know, which is much more ironic than people really often realize, um, you know, is part of why she becomes a central figure for, for me, for thinking about the turn of the century. I think it's also interesting to realize that half of Wharton's career takes place after 1920. And that, you know, people often conflate her subjects with, a kind of ideological outlook or something, and they really associate her with the 1870s or something like that. And it's always a little bit surprising if if you're one of the scholars who studies her work from the 20s and into the 30s, um, especially. And I think where this crystallized for us was in our discussion of the Age of Innocence, which is um, just a, a multifaceted book, but it often gets taught in a modern lit class as a kind of representative of the old way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a really problematic and also kind of a curious tidbit of literary history when, you know, if you know a lot about her late career, it's very clear that she represents no such backward glancing impulse. That's right. At least not in the sense that glancing backward means valorizing the old ways. Um, And that for us became kind of a a touchstone of some of the difficulties of understanding this complex period and, and 
made us want to intervene in it in a very particular way. And, and, and if, and if I could add to that, and Amelia and I were talking about this last night, um, there are, are texts that we didn't get to talk about in this volume, which are, are just endlessly, you know, generative of discussion. And in those post 1920 novels that Melanie's talking about, um, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, ideas and discussions about uh, reproduction, about the fetishization of youth culture, especially, you know, young girls and young women. Um, uh, They're, they're, they're full of ideas about, you know, aging and um, rejuvenation um, and sort of new religious uh, um, cultures of the early 20th century. Um, and so we see Wharton, you know, who again is, is viewed as sort of this symbol of, of, you know, sort of like a late 19th century elite, you know, as being incredibly modern um, and taking on issues that are, you know, very, very relevant to the early 21st century. Um, but because of a number of things, I think of stereotypes associated with class and gender, um, also with age, you know, of the way that Wharton is often represented visually and some of the images of her um, that are frequently reproduced, she is seen through this very unitary lens. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Absolutely. And I think actually, I suppose one thing that the figure of Wharton does, as you've said, is that she does challenge this idea of periodization and this idea of assigning something a rigid temporal category. And this very much seems to be Mm -hmm. the sort of the focus of the first section of the book. The first few essays are very much about texts that look forward, but also look backwards to the past. Was it intentional to begin the book with these texts that challenge temporality? Was that an intentional attempt, I suppose, to set up one of the key themes or the key issues that would be ongoing throughout the book? I think so, Um, especially if you think about the way that a lot of turn of the century work is talked about through the isms, right? Naturalism, realism, modernism, you'll see that the first section is um, responding to some of those categorizations um, and opening up new venues uh, so that we can rethink those categories and also the historical categories. Because once you take away a certain set of historical presumptions, you wonder why categories like realism and naturalism have become so dominant. I think in some way they've, they've mm-hmm. solved a historical conundrum that has remained in <clears throat> some ways unaddressed because those categories have been so strong and so compelling. Um, but but rethinking periodization also means rethinking those very um, nomenclatures. Absolutely. I think that's a really, really interesting project, though, the idea of sort of unpacking these terms that have become a sort of academic shorthand 
or, you know, a scholarly shorthand for how we engage with certain types of literature. So I feel like that's a that's a really important project and a really important idea. Um, From there, I'd like to move on to talk to you a bit about the second section of the book, because I was really intrigued by this idea of moving away from the less canonical literary works of the period. And you say that the, the second section is very much devoted to essays that shift their analysis away from the sort of accepted literary traditions of the period. Why did you why did you decide to do this to move away from the canon of accepted turn of the century literature and why did you feel that it was important to move outside of that canon if 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 I can jump in here Melanie I kind of wanted to give a a, a little shout out to your essay because when I think back upon it um I think the putting together of like the turn of the century authors like Robert Herrick you know who are thinking about you know companionate marriage and relationships you know and going all the way up to Zora Neale Hurston um, in Their Eyes Were Watching God and Seraph on the Sewanee, you know, we see that, you know, the phenomena like marriage, you know, um, are the source of a debate that's really spanning, you know, from the late 19th century, you know, all the way through the early 20th century. And, you know, we see authors just from a range of, of backgrounds and in a range of, of sort of levels of canonicity, you know, debating this question. You know, it's obviously a really critical critical question for, you know, for the new woman, for Greenwich Village in the turn of the century. But I think what's shown, you know, through this turn of the century narrative, that it's it's a debate that starts much earlier and lasts much later. And it's also very interesting um, to me, and and thank you for the shout out, by the way, um, that um, (laughs) the immigrant communities, the Native American communities, the Bohemian communities, the Greenwich Village communities, you know, um, and and they're all talked about in the second section and going into our third section of the book, um, that they are real hotbeds, if you will, of um, interrogation, of challenging uh, received notions um, of how society should operate or how conventions should um, inform daily life, there's a tremendous amount of innovation uh, and resistance coming out of those particular communities. And rather than seeing them as necessarily regressive, to see them as um, raising very important cultural questions about values, um, about why the present and the future figure um so prominently in modernist discourses or in ideas of the modern, I think that's a very exciting part of the project. Um, And that's kind of characterizing it, I think, in a way we didn't overtly in the intro. But what do you think, Meredith? Well, I was thinking just about um, some of, you know, you're touching on Yazierska and some of my own work on Yazierska. And I think that she's a she's a really excellent example of an author who looks different, you know, when examined through this lens. You know, I'm talking about Anzia Yazierska, um, the early 20th century Jewish immigrant writer who's best known for bread givers, um, uh, which, again, is seen as this great novel about, you know, a sort of assimilations departure from one's family, sort of charting this new American identity, but it's also, you know, about a novel, uh, a novel about a heroine who chooses to live with a man. Um, Salome of the Tenements is a novel about um, an intermarriage and a a fair amount of sexual um, openness. Um, And, 
and I feel like these discourses, you know, again, I think this is where bringing issues of, you know, the debates over marriage, the debates over the new woman, um, the debates over sort of personal indi- and individual freedom um, are a way of really rethinking this cluster, you know, of authors from the turn of the century. That's actually really fascinating. And I feel like that's a really, really interesting perspective on certainly is Yershka, which is, you know, certainly not a way that she is often framed. As you said, she is often framed in terms of this, you know, almost conservative narrative of assimilation into America and assimilation being, you know, synonymous with progress. So I feel like that's actually a really, really interesting way to explore her work. And it's such an interesting way, again, to move outside of that canon of, you know, turn of the century standards. And I actually, I guess I wanted to come back to this issue that you sort of touched on there when you were talking about the bread givers and sort of the issue of gender and relationships. Because in your final section, the essays engage quite a lot with issues of female emancipation. And I find that really interesting because obviously, you know, your your construction of turn of the century um, literature is that it is looking backwards and engaged with the past as well as looking forwards. And we often tend to think of women's emancipation as a distinctly modern issue, as a distinctly, you know, maybe even turn of the century issue. So do you think that the essays in your collection sort of challenge this idea of women's emancipation as distinctly modern? Uh, Do these essays sort of engage with how um, issues surrounding women's emancipation might also look backwards to earlier points in the 19th century, for example? I think certainly the essays on marriage, and I'm thinking of Donna Campbell's, and mine and um, notions of the the new woman, marriage and the new woman become entangled in very interesting, complicated ways. Um, often we see this kind of modern impulse toward change um, and, and a real confidence in something new and innovative in terms of family life or personal identity, gender identity. And, um, that's not where those narratives end. <laughs> they often end with a collapse of hope and a right. re-entrenchment of the norms. And, um, you know, what I saw and what fascinated me was there's so much more confidence and openness about something like companionate marriage, even in the 80s and the 90s. And then you get a return to really traditional patriarchal structures 30, 40 years later. And Something in me said, this is so curious. This is not how we've been taught that literary history is supposed to behave. <laughs> One thing. Right. And and you're you're making me think of of another one of my favorite overlooked novels. I know you touch a little bit on um on the story of Avis, and I was also thinking about the silent partner, you know, um, which ends with some very interesting depictions of women who choose to stay single um, and what that means. Um, and it's sort of neither triumphant nor capitulation. So it, it just requires us to think about some of those sort of narrative, you know, conclusions in very different ways. And and what is the role of stasis at this time? I think oh, yeah. an interesting question too. You yeah. know, we're thinking about sort of elliptical arcs of, of, progress and regress, but there's also, you know, stasis. Oh yeah. Or rocking back and forth as flames. Yes. Yep. Um, and 
you know, somebody like uh, Don Campbell's essay is also about this. It's about the whole idea of revolution. Well, <laughs> what happens if the revolution never occurs, if it never appears, if we can't label it a real revolution by the time it's uh, complete? That's such an interesting idea because I... So I myself work on a leisure period and I teach on a leisure period. But I often, one of the things I often look at with my students is sort of the the re-establishment of very conservative, very rigid gender roles after the Second World War. And they, they're often really surprised mm-hmm. to learn that actually, you know, say in the 30s and 40s, there was a great liberalization of gender roles, especially during the war. And then things swung back around to this more conservative structure again, because I think we're sort of trained again, as you said earlier, to see history and literature and culture as this sort of teleological march towards progress and equality and just things being better. But that's often not the case. There are often, you know, these movements forward, followed by movements back, or as you said, complete stasis. It's actually far more complex than that. So I think that's such a fascinating way to look at a period that, you know, again, is very much viewed as simply, you know, emblematic of progress and modernity. And I think, you know, and part of, I think, one of my, you know, sort of pleasures of this book is that we sort of got to highlight some works that are typically seen as as messy, you know, and like my in my own work on Fawcett, you know, that novel ends with, um, you know, a, a very, very tentative um, look at, you know, possibility of a happy marriage, you know, and I think that part of what's happening in a lot in some of these novels is that there's sort of multiple opportunities and options presented, you know, so the readers almost sort of offered like a, you know, something like a test, like, look at this option, look at this option, you know, and none of them, you know, is, is necessarily as optimistic as, as we've been, you know, encouraged to think. The faucet essay um, by you, Meredith, is so interesting and it makes so much sense in this T20 context because faucet has has been really a a sort of problem author for let's say modern journals or modernist studies. Um, She, she doesn't fit easily into a great number of categories and, you know, for us, and as your essay shows, that's the perfect kind of figure to interrogate in this um, project about a really complex multi-stranded literary history. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm hoping in some subsequent work to um, to start working with Anne Petrie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's another, you know, exciting what, you know thing for me about this period, that it offers a way of thinking about some of those mid-20th century authors. One more thing I would just add to this whole conversation about how um, progress isn't necessarily embodied by any kind of historical moment or movement. Um, I was talking to one of my classes about this in the last couple of weeks. We were working with a 1950s text and students were commenting on the way in which it seems so much more closed off and rigid and about tradition and really the problems of tradition, but tradition really does dominate the novel than some of the works from the 19-teens or the early 20s. And it was just this moment of reflection about how there are periods that close down opportunities. And I think students were thinking about their own historical moment, about how at this moment, um, for many, many people, it's hard to see progress going on in the world right now. And that 
others before them have lived through similar kinds of quandaries and and yet somehow or another progress still happened or change happened or rethinking happened and i think they were very comforted by that <laughs> for a little moment anyway that's, that's really interesting because actually even though i'm not based in the us i think that this idea that as you said there are just these moments that completely shut down progress and shut down opportunity but then they might be followed by a period of expansion and a period of openness i think that's actually something that a lot of my students found comfort as well even though you know they're in a slightly different cultural context so it is interesting mm-hmm. to see how how people respond to that kind of idea of historical movement as not being a straightforward line, as not being a straightforward march towards new and better, but rather this complex period of, you know, progression and regression and stasis. So it's such an interesting idea. If I could just say one thing about this, about thinking about our contemporary historical moment, it's hard not to think about some of the things we see in in these novels in relationship to Me Too movement, you know, and I'm, you know, the novel that I'm talking about in in this volume is has a character who's submitted who's subjected to multiple sexual propositions, and I feel like what we're seeing now with people having to revisit things that took place in the '80s you know, um, that there are just sort of narratives um, that haven't been sort of fully articulated and conversations that haven't been had, you know. Um, And I feel like that kind of relates to that sense of stasis that Melanie is talking about. Um, So I guess the next thing I wanted to ask, because I, I kind of noticed that you were both sort of alluding to where this project might go or what might happen. Uh, So I was kind of wondering, do you think this project will be, you know, do you see this project as opening up new venues for scholarly inquiry? Um, Do you think that this might sort of, do you think that this project will contribute to transforming the field of turn of the century studies, or I suppose expanding on um, how we typically periodize literary studies? Well, um, there has been some conversation about whether or not this might be a good um, sort of topical field for a journal. Um, And that's something we've talked about a few times, but (laughs) haven't really pursued at this moment. We we wanted to do a book and think about how the book went um, and to think about how much more there could be Uh, written, published, conferenced about around this topic. And I think at the moment for us, um, that's an open question. Uh, You don't want to answer a question like that for yourself just when you've finished a book. (laughs) Yeah, because I suppose my next question was whether you were working on any projects or, you know, is there anything new on the horizon for either of you? Hmm. Well, I, I'm I'm just going to mention a couple of things I'm doing now. Melanie and I, you know, have both been involved um, in a lot of work on Wharton. Um, you know, obviously both that that's already been published and that is soon to be published. Um, and I'm sort of um, I've been working a little bit on Wharton's representation of children. Um, and I know Melanie's been working on some stuff related to age um, and I think adolescence in Wharton's work as well. 
Oh, that's fascinating. Um, just because I'm also sort of working on some stuff regarding adolescence. So it seems interesting that you're opening up that field or you're opening up that area of inquiry. Um, yes. Um, age studies, I think, is becoming a really exciting, interesting field, especially um you know, for me, right around this turn of the century, early 20th century period, when there were so many interventions into aging, uh, rejuvenation treatments, um, you can read all about the Steinick treatment, which was kind of horrific. Um, and um, lots of new ways of thinking about not only adolescence, but the way that adolescents put um, the pressure um, on other age boundaries, like um, middle adulthood, late adulthood, middle age, old age, um, senescence, um, and how those um, categories and anxieties about entering and exiting categories inform so much of early 20th century discourses. So I've been working on that project, and it's um, very Wharton-centric. Uh, it's very attuned to these. Um, they're, they're very visible as women's issues in particular, um, and then I, I pair Wharton's work with that of people like Sinclair Lewis and Zora Neale Hurston and Willa Cather. Um, so it's been a very interesting, interesting midlife project, I would guess I would say. It sounds very <laughs> exciting, though. And I'll also add to that, I do think that this project has informed some of my other work in ways that I hadn't really thought about, you know, in fact, until now. Um, I've been working on an essay, uh, which is going to come out pretty soon about the beautiful and the damned. Um, and obviously, that novel takes place um, during World War One. Um, but part of what I ended up focusing on is sort of an element of Confederate nostalgia. Um, in that novel. Um, and the, the couple who's at the center of the novel makes a visit to the Robert E. Lee mansion, you know, and it turns out that this nostalgia for the Civil War sort of permeates the way that Fitzgerald writes about World War One in that novel. So again, I saw some sort of shaking up of temporality that I didn't really anticipate. And I think that this project had something to do with that. Oh, wow. I think so interesting, Meredith. Um, uh, so exciting, you know, as someone who's lived most of my life in Virginia, the touchstone of the Civil War, it just keeps marching on, doesn't it? just doesn't give up. And it's just fascinating that Fitzgerald is so interested in it. And it's reminding me of that place where he's talking about Westmoreland County, Virginia, at the end of Tender is the Night, Um so I'll be so fascinated in that when it comes out. Well, and, and I think, again, it's it has to do with sort of expanding, you know, not only the corpus, but the way you think about it, you know, that we only see this kind of, you know, sort of the nostalgic lens of the Great Gatsby, you know, and then we're not seeing some of the really interesting and, and messy ways that he's thinking about these issues in his other work, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then if we if we don't think only about the French Riviera and the sort of uh, post-war cosmopolitanism. Right. You know, but if we also think about an American literary or and cultural pasts, we get a different vision of Fitzgerald in a way, one much more akin to, um, let's say, like James Howells and Wharton. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not sort of Hemingway and, and some of the other uh, modern writers. Yeah, yeah, I agree. 
So I think that seems like a pretty good place to finish with both of you looking forward to new projects. And again, I just wanted to thank both of you so much for appearing on the podcast. And just to remind our listeners, if they're at all interested in this idea of the turn of the century and expanding the notion of what this T20 period could be, they should definitely check out American Literary History and the Turn Towards Modernity, edited by Melanie V. Dawson and Meredith L. Goldsmith. And it's out now from the University. Press of Florida. So thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you very much. 